you would, take your Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 2 this morning. Genesis chapter 2. You know, there's a lot of discussion going on in our culture regarding history. Some want to forget our history. Others would prefer to rewrite our history. And some seek to denounce our history. But the problem, of course, is that no matter how painful or unpleasant the events of the past may be, they cannot be undone. History is static. It's like hardened cement. And whatever touched that cement when it was wet has left a mark that cannot be removed. You know, the scriptures contain not only descriptions of past events, but instruction for us on how we should think about past events and respond to those events. We're called upon to see godly examples and to emulate those examples, and we're called to see those who were godless and foolish and to reject those examples. And while I would argue that it's important for individual human nations to know their history and to learn from their history, I think it's even more essential that we as a human race collectively understand our history and learn from it. You know, there's much history for us in the scriptures about all kinds of things that help us understand life in this fallen world. But this morning, I want to close out our series on marriage by looking specifically at our history as a race of human beings when it comes to marriage. Many have experienced hurt and pain when it comes to the institution of marriage. And I think it's safe to say that all of us could give testimony of difficulties and stories and trials either from our own marriage or from those marriages of family members and friends who mean the world to us. And because of the hurt and pain that often comes through marriage, some have just become disillusioned about the institution altogether. In fact, Pat, perhaps you're here this morning and that would describe you and you've just become disillusioned with marriage. Or maybe you're here and you're in a difficult marriage and you wonder if there's any way that your marriage could have a happy ending. Others of you are perhaps recovering from the pain of a broken marriage. Some may be here unmarried, but you've seen really bad examples of marriage and are fearful of getting married because what if that happens to you? Perhaps we're tempted to wonder why. Why is something that we universally see as a good thing that from childhood often we look forward to with great anticipation and hope and, and, and we just can't wait to get there. Why is this thing called marriage often the backdrop of such pain and disappointment and sin? Well, I would argue that perhaps we've forgotten our history. And if we haven't forgotten our history, perhaps we've failed to rightly apply the truths of our history to our current situation. And so over the past two Sundays, if you've been here, you know that we've looked at Paul's instruction in Colossians to wives and then to husbands. We've talked about marriage and what the New Testament commands are for us to fulfill in marriage as wives and as husbands. And as we've looked at that high calling that's laid out for us clearly on the pages of Scripture... I've been burdened in my heart because I realized that for some of you, while I intended and hoped for it to be an encouragement, may actually have left discouraged. Because you look at the standard of what God says your marriage should be, and then you look at your marriage and you say, there's such a gulf between those two things. How, how could I ever be that kind of wife? How could I ever be that kind of husband? Well, this morning I want to say to you, take heart. Take heart. I want you to understand that there is hope for you as an individual, and there is hope if you're married for your marriage. In fact, the title of our message this morning is Hope for Marriage in a Fallen World. Hope for marriage in a fallen world. And I'm going to answer two crucial questions this morning. First of all, I want to answer why is marriage difficult? And I want to answer, is there hope for the future? Is there hope? And to do that, we've got to go back to the beginning. 
So we're going to close out this series on marriage by taking a a short one-week pause on Colossians, and we're going to go back to Genesis chapter 2 to help us remember some familiar truths about where marriage comes from, why it's broken, and how it can be fixed. Now remember, the book of Genesis is part of the Pentateuch, that is the first five books of the Old Testament given to Moses, uh, most of it shortly after they left Egypt. Genesis is not a book of poetry, as some have argued, but rather this is historical narrative. These are true events. This is our history. If you're a human being, this is where you come from. And this is why the world is the way that it is. Therefore, it's, it's meant to be taken literally. These descriptions are from the mouth of God to Moses, as God obviously being an eyewitness of how things came to be. In Genesis 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 3, we have the description of creation. How did the universe come to be? The universe and all that it contains. But then beginning in verse 4 of chapter 2, it's as if God zooms in on specifically mankind. He includes the creation of Adam and Eve in the first description of Creation, But then he, he zooms in to give us more detail about how it came to be that Adam and Eve were brought together, not only in creation, but in marriage. Both of them were created on the sixth day. And so these verses highlight the events that took place there on that wonderful day. Now, obviously, this is because man was made in the image of God and set apart from the rest of creation. Man was the the crown jewel, so to speak, of creation. They were to be God's representatives on the earth. And they were tasked with, with managing and cultivating and enjoying all that God had made. And so it's important in the mind of God for us to understand what was unique about the creation of the first man and the first woman. So we're going to be looking at a broad overview of Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, through Genesis chapter 3, verse 19. And we won't look at every single verse there, but most of it we will, and we'll summarize the verses that we don't have time to look at in detail. And what I want you to see are three important scenes. Three scenes. The first scene is the divine intention. The divine intention. This is beginning in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. Moses writes, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth and no plant of the field had yet sprouted for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'll stop there for a moment. In verse 7, we have the record of the creation of the first man, who's called Adam. God breathes the breath of life into him, and therefore he lives. In verse 9, he places him in this garden that is designed especially for him. Imagine that. A perfect place for him to live and carry out God's plan and design for him. And God specifically chooses the the trees and plants that grow in the garden with two purposes in mind. First of all, Moses says they were trees that were pleasing to the eye. That is, God planted it to be enjoyed. He planted it to be beautiful, to be a wonderful place for Adam to live. And secondly, he planted all the trees that were good for food. That is, to provide for his physical needs. Now imagine, some of you like gardening and enjoy planting beautiful plants. Imagine if God specifically chose from his creative imagination the trees and plants that he deems to be beautiful and good to eat. And he put all of them in one place and then let you live there. Think about how beautiful that would be. That's where Adam is. Adam's, Adam's in this beautiful place, pre-fall. There's everything as just as it should be, and Adam himself, even without sin. This 
description also mentions that there are two special trees in the garden. The first, of course, is the tree of life. The other is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which will come to play a big role in our history as human beings. Now, from there, I want you to look at verse 15. Because in verse 15, he puts Adam in this beautiful garden, and he gives him a job to do, proving that work itself was, was not something that came from the fall, but was always part of God's good intention for man. Work is good. Genesis 2.15, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. That was his job. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any of the tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. So think about this. Adam's life consisted of really two commands. On the one hand, he was commanded to enjoy literally any tree that he wanted to eat from. God says it's all yours, all of it, except for one. Don't eat from this one single tree. That was his only command. Think about that. Think about all the laws in, in, in Exodus, Leviticus, and repeated in, in Deuteronomy that the Israelites had. And yet here's Adam in his perfection with one rule. Don't eat from this tree. That is his reality. And then God says, if you do, here's the punishment, verse 17, for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Now think about it. Adam, he's never seen anything die. I wonder how much Adam even really understood. Certainly he could not have understood the fullness of the consequences that would come. But there it is. Adam, do not eat from it, and in the day that you do, you will die. But in verse 18, God says something that should take us by surprise. If you're familiar with Genesis at all, this should be shocking to you. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good. It is not good. Now, if you've ever read Genesis, you understand that throughout the creation account, God looks at his creation and repeats the same uh, phrase over and over again. What is it? It is good, right? Six times in chapter 1, we have this repeated phrase, and it was good. In Genesis 1.31, it was very good. And yet here in verse 18, we have God looking at what he's made, and he says something is not good. It's not good for the man to be alone, he says. I will make a helper suitable for him. The idea when God says that it's not good is it's not complete. It was always God's intention from the beginning for mankind to be made up of a man and a woman. It was always God's plan. And God says, I'm going to be the solution to this problem. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, there's a whole lot of truth packed into that one little phrase. First of all, this person, he says, will be a helper. Her role will be to come alongside Adam in fulfilling the role that God has given to him. She is to help him flourish and to succeed in the cultivation and the keeping of the garden, as well as, of course, to, to have children that would then fill the earth. Kyle and Dalich in their Old Testament commentary say this, Of such a help the man stood in need in order that he might fulfill his calling, not only to perpetuate and multiply his race, but to cultivate and govern the earth. Clearly then, it was God's intention from the very beginning, before sin ever entered the world. And hear this, this is important. Before sin came into the world, God said that the man is to lovingly lead his wife, and the wife is to come alongside and to be a help to him. But this is not just a helper. He says this is a helper suitable for him. The word suitable there means corresponding to. She will not be inferior to Adam, but will be equal to Adam in personhood. She too will be an image bearer of God as he is. She will be made to be a perfect counterpart to the man in every way. No other created being can correspond, can be suitable for Adam like this one will be. And just to prove that to us, we're not going to read it, but in verses 18 to 20, God does something interesting. 
right after he says, I'm going to solve your problem, Adam, of not having a, a companion, he has Adam name all of the animals. Perhaps in your Bible read-through, you've wondered, that's, a, that's odd. That placement seems odd. Well, it, it's not odd because what God is doing is showing that his point is true. He has Adam look at all the animals that God has made, and does he find a companion? Does he find a helper suitable for him? No. He really is alone. And so, after convincing Adam of the fact that he really does stand in need of a companion, we read these words in Genesis 2, 21 and 22. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he'd taken from the man and brought her to the man. Such a beautiful passage. We could spend the entire morning looking at just those words. Again, the way that Moses writes this is dripping with instruction for us. You know, God's already proven that he doesn't need any pre-existent raw materials to create, right? In Genesis 1.1, we have God simply creating out of nothing. There was no matter, there was no molecules or particles floating around that God put together. There was nothing, and God spoke, and there was. And yet here, when we know that he could have created Eve from nothing, he doesn't do that. How does he do it? He chooses to take a piece of Adam and to make Eve from that piece of Adam's body. Why? The reason is is clear in the context. I think there are two implications primarily. First of all, it's a reminder that she will be like him. She will be an image bearer as he is. But I do think there is some significance. We have to be careful not to go overboard here in our assumptions, but I do think there is some significance of the fact that he takes a piece of Adam's side. That is, that, that though Adam is to be the leader of Eve and the leader of his family, she is to be at his side, his lifelong companion, working together to fulfill what it is that God has called them to do. And in verse 22, we have these beautiful words, God brought her to the man. Just, just picture it. Take yourself there if you can to this beautiful garden, this lush garden. And for the first time, Adam awakes from his sleep and he sees Eve, that God has created one that finally corresponds to him. And God brings her to him. It's impossible to, to know or comprehend the joy that Adam must have felt that day in his sinless state to see Eve for the first time, and I assume that the feeling must have been mutual for them both. Both of them standing there in sinless perfection, not only beholding one another, but beholding the very plan of God, that this was God's will for them to be brought together. And in bringing her to the man, he's not just bringing her to show her off. There is this picture here of God bringing her to the man for the two of them to become one in the covenant of marriage. With this act, Marriage is born. It's as if God says, she was made especially for you. Adam realizes this immediately. He realizes that she is wonderfully like him, and yet at the very same time, wonderfully different than him at the same time. Genesis chapter 2, verse 23, listen to his response. Then the man said... This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Adam's words here affirm that, yes, she is an image bearer of God. She is one suitable, one corresponding to him. He immediately notices their similarities, but he also notices their differences. And we see that in the name that he chooses to give to Eve. There is a word play here in the Hebrew that our English language actually picks up on. Adam's name is Ish, and he looks at her and says, she will be called Isha. You see, he, his name is contained in her name, but he adds a feminine ending, just like in English, man and woman. The, man, the word man is contained in the word woman. There's a word play there on purpose to say, she's like me. We are, we are the same, and yet we are different. We correspond to one another. 
And then based upon this wonderful, dramatic event, Moses makes an editorial comment. He makes a comment on what happens here for us to understand that a principle has just been laid down that will affect every marriage going forward. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 and 25. He says, for this reason. For what reason? Because of what God has just done. And creating Adam and Eve and bringing them together. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. In creating Eve this way and bringing her to Adam, God was establishing something. He was establishing a pattern that was to play out on the pages of human history over and over again. That a boy would grow into a man to maturity and he would take a wife and they would leave their parents' home and join together. And now this new relationship would be a new family and that family would be priority over their previous parental relationship. And notice they were there in the garden perfectly innocent even as adults they were perfectly innocent that's why he adds this phrase the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed just like a toddler runs through the house after his bath without his clothes on and feels no shame here we have Adam and Eve they don't feel shame because they're completely innocent they're innocent of evil doesn't come to mind what's the takeaway the takeaway is that marriage is good It's good. It's glorious, in fact. Marriage is, in fact, a gift from the hand of Almighty God. That he gave the gift of marriage to his created people for their enjoyment and for their good. Now, if you've been in church any time at all, then that story is not unfamiliar to you. The details there are probably something that you yourself could have explained. We know this story well. In fact, I read a large portion of that story in every wedding that I perform. And in every Christian wedding ceremony, there's a sense in which this marvelous scene is recreated. As that bride comes walking down the aisle on her father's arm. And the groom stands there overwhelmed at the beauty of his bride. Not just a bride, but his bride coming down the aisle to him as the father gives her away to this man. And as the music plays and the crowd stands with their eyes trained on that bride, there is a sense in the room of the majesty and the beauty and the wonder of the gift of marriage. We sense the goodness of what God has done in giving us this gift. And the truth is most Christian couples, if not all, stand there face to face and they take their vows and they assume in their heart of hearts that they will have a Genesis 2 type of union. But there's a problem. The Bible doesn't end with Genesis chapter 2. It turns out that there has only been one couple in history that's ever had a Genesis 2 marriage. And it only lasted for a very short time. If we're going to understand why marriage is the way that it is today... We've got to keep reading into chapter 3. And in chapter 3, we find another scene of our history, scene number 2, the human corruption. We have God's divine intention. Now we have the human corruption. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened 
and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Here in verse 1, we're introduced for the first time to God's great enemy that we know as Satan. Unbeknownst to Adam and Eve, a great rebellion's taken place in the heavenly realms. And the highest ranking angel in God's created order has pridefully lifted up himself, desiring the glory that only God deserves. And because of that, he was cast down, taking with him many angels that followed. And Satan was powerless to overthrow God. And so what he did instead was set his sights on disrupting God's created order to, to, to disrupt this beautiful creation that God has made on the earth. And so he appears as one of the animals of the garden as a snake. We don't know whether he possessed an actual snake or how he did it, but he appears to Eve as a snake and he craftily and intentionally flips God's good design on its head. I want you to see this. Maybe you've never seen this before, but what Satan does is very intentional here because in God's created order, who is to be the, the leader of the family relationship? Adam. And then he and Eve together are to rule over the rest of creation. But what does Satan do? He comes as an animal to Eve, and then Eve goes to Adam. He completely reverses the roles that God intended for his created order. And by the way, he's still doing that. It's one of his favorite ploys. That's why we see the world going crazy on things like marriage and gender issues and all of those things, because that is his plan. He wants to disrupt and to destroy what God has made in God's created order. What God says is good, he says is evil. And so he goes against the, the God-given authority structure here, coming to Eve as an animal, and tempts her to question the character of God. Notice, he doesn't just tempt her to eat from the tree. He calls into question the, the reliability and the trustworthiness of the word of God. He says, has God said? Has he really said that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Of course, that's not what he said. And Eve corrects him, even adding, though, a new provision that God never gave of you can't even touch it. But then he calls into question the character of God, not just the word of God, but the motives of God and says, no, 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 you won't die. The issue is God wants to reserve this special knowledge that he has for himself, and he doesn't want you to have it, and that's the issue. When you eat of it, he knows that you'll become like him. That, of course, is blasphemy, but Eve, unfortunately, takes the bait, and she eats of the forbidden fruit, but unfortunately, she's not alone in her sin. Verse 6 explains that she gave some of the fruit to Adam, who then joined her in her rebellion. The one who was given to Adam to be his helper, to, to live in a way that God desired, now tempts him into sin. And Adam is not off the hook because in verse 6 it says that she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. There's a lot of implications in those two words, with her. Just moments ago, we read that God graciously gave Eve to Adam for him to lead. The idea, the insinuation is to lead with love, to protect her. And yet, the indication here in the text is that Adam wasn't somewhere far off in the garden doing his own thing, but that he was with her. That is, he stood idly by as the serpent tempted her and didn't intervene and didn't protect her and didn't call her back. He let her go into sin and then didn't lead her but followed her into sin. You see, all of God's created order has now been flipped on its head and we call this monumental event the fall. The fall of mankind into sin. And its effects, as God promised, were indeed devastating. All of man would be corrupted. We call this total depravity. It's not that, that man became as bad as he possibly could be, but every part of him was affected by the fall into sin. He was corrupted to the core. His thoughts and intentions and desires changed 
and he would one day physically die, but this death included more than just physical death. Spiritually, they died and were now separated from the good God that they had known intimate, perfect fellowship with from the beginning. The Bible says they stood as our representatives in that garden. They represented us all as a race, as humankind. And in their rebellion, they plunged not only themselves into sin and the consequences of sin, but all of their descendants, including us. And we would quickly add to their sin, sins of our own. What I want us to understand is that the consequences of sin affected life across the planet in every aspect, including, for our purposes this morning, the covenant of marriage. Marriage also was affected by the fall. And God actually speaks to the marriage relationship in the consequences that he gives to Eve for her sin and talks about what now will change in the dynamic between the husband and wife because of sin. I think you remember that after this, God confronts them of their sin. Adam blames Eve and ultimately God. He says, the woman you gave to me did this. She blames Satan. And so God gives punishments to all three, beginning with Satan, then to Eve, and then to Adam. I want you to look specifically at verse 16 of chapter 3 where we have the consequences given to Eve because it's here that we see how marriage specifically was affected by the fall. Genesis chapter 3 verse 16. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now what's going on here? What does this mean? Well, God hones in on the two primary responsibilities that a woman would fulfill in her life. One of them would be raising children, and the other would be coming alongside her husband as a helpmate, as God intended for her to be. He talks about that childbirth now has become painful, and we know throughout human history, even dangerous at times. Women have unfortunately died in childbirth. But not just that, the once perfect and harmonious loving relationship between Adam and Eve would be disrupted and tainted by sin. I was careful to emphasize this earlier, but remember, before the fall, the roles were given, that Adam would lead and the wife would be his helper. That, that is not a consequence of the fall. The idea of a husband leading is not a punishment. What he's describing here is that, that now those roles will become difficult. Now it's going to be hard. Just like with having babies, she would have been able to have children before, but now it's going to be difficult. It's going to come with pain and difficulty. The relationship in marriage, the roles haven't changed. The, the God's design and his commands have not changed, but now it will be hard. Just as we'll see later in Adam's punishment, Work becomes work at the fall. Work was always good, but now it's going to be hard. The assumption is in their perfection before the fall, Adam would have delighted and naturally led his wife in, with love and kindness and compassion. And Eve would have delighted in her role of, of gently and humbly coming alongside him to help. And they would have lived in harmony together. But now, though they're still accountable to live that way, it's going to be a challenge. He says, your desire will be for your husband. What does he mean? He's saying that, that now it's not going to be this easy thing where you see it naturally that you should submit to your husband's leadership, but there's going to be times where you are tempted to want that role for yourself, to, to emerge as the leader, if not of the home in general, in certain situations, to force the issue, to get your way rather than coming alongside your husband to help. And then it says, and he will rule over you. He already had been given authority before the fall. So what does this mean? The idea is that he will continue to be your head as God designed, but now his temptation will be to lead with harshness, to be overbearing, and to respond to her sin by seeking to, to put her back in her place in a harsh, heavy-handed way. 
And so we have this sort of cyclical pattern that emerges where the wife is going to be tempted to push issues, to, to push her ideas and her preferences, and the husband's going to be tempted to respond to that by responding in harshness and being overbearing, and they will struggle. The relationship will, will not be as harmonious as it was in the garden. What I want you to understand is that this is exactly what we see in marriages today. It's interesting, both of the New Testament passages that we've studied over the last two weeks of Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5 deal with the, the basic fundamental roles of being a husband and wife. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Why? Why are we going back to the basics of all the things that the scriptures could teach us about being husbands and wives? It's because the basics were affected at the fall. The wife would now struggle to submit herself, and the husband would struggle to lead with love and kindness. Just by way of some examples, and these are general examples with, with no specific example in mind, some wives are, are very vocal and outspoken and constantly pushing their husbands to reconsider the decisions they've made and, or go a different direction. This is what Solomon calls the, the constant drip approach. This is Proverbs chapter 27, verses 15 and 16. He says, a constant dripping on a day of steady rain and a contentious woman are alike. He who would restrain her restrains the wind and grasps oil with his right hand. It's a poetic way to say that when a wife gives into this temptation to, to just keep pushing and pushing and pushing, it's like being in a house when it's raining, then the, the roof has a leak, and there's a constant drip, 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 to the point that you want to go insane. I've got to fix the leak. I don't care how hard it's raining. I've got to fix it. He says, trying to lead a woman like that is like trying to pour oil in your hand and keep it from running between your fingers. You can't do it. Other wives have a different personality, and they, and they don't want to continually press an issue over and over again, but they, they more subtly try to subvert the leadership of their husbands, perhaps giving something or withholding something in a way to manipulate or use as a bargaining chip or other more subtle ways of getting their way. But understand, ladies, whatever your personality is, this will be your temptation. But men, the same goes for us. Some husbands respond to their wives' attempts to persuade them with angry outbursts of their own intended to, to force the wife back into her position because of intimidation. Other husbands are tempted to just give up and abandon their role of leading altogether and just let the wives lead and do whatever they want to do. And they shrug it off with some funny statement like, happy wife, happy life. But men, how did that work out for Adam? Not so good. God has not called us to simply satisfy every whim of our wives' temporal desires without thought. We are to love our wives. We are to provide for their needs and even their wants, but always in accordance with the Scripture. We're called to lead our wives in the truth, men. And sometimes that means we have to lovingly and humbly take a stand and say, I know that's what you desire, but this is what God's word says. My point in showing you this and even giving these examples is to help us see that even as Christians, we have Genesis chapter 3 affected marriages. We still live in a fallen world. And I say that for your encouragement. You say, really? I don't feel encouraged. I say it for your encouragement because some of you think that your marriage is just doomed in ways that everyone else's is not. You come to church and you look around and you say, wow, don't they look happy? Look at how she's so gentle and submissive to him. Or look at how he adores her and how he cherishes her and lovingly leads her. And then you think about the argument that you and your spouse had on the way to church. And you think, well, we just must be different. We, we just don't have what it takes. We're just not like them. But the truth is, every marriage in this room is affected by Genesis chapter 3. Every marriage in this room. A happy, healthy, godly marriage is possible, but only by the grace of God 
with a lot of sustained intentional effort. That couple that you look at as the model couple may indeed have a great marriage as you assume. But if they do, it's because God's, God has been gracious to them and they have put forth a lot of intentional effort to get there. And understand that no matter how hard we work, we will still be in a fallen world and we will never reach the perfect image that Genesis 2 was. I fear that some of us may be holding on to an ideal image of what we think marriage should be like. We, we, we're informed either by Genesis 2 or Hollywood or some other thing that we've made up in our imaginations and said, this is what marriage must be. And every area of our marriage that doesn't measure up, we, we look at it with anger or frustration or depression or bitterness. But the lesson of Genesis 3 is for us to say, we shouldn't be surprised when, I, when my flesh is tempted to not do what God has said. I shouldn't be surprised when my spouse sins against me and she shouldn't be surprised when I sin against her. It's not a justification for those sins. It's recognizing we live in a fallen world and even as Christians, we have a flesh and we're in battle with that flesh all day, every day. But there is hope. Hear me, there is hope for you and there's hope for your marriage if you're in a struggling relationship this morning. Even in this fallen world, as devastating as the effects of sin have been, marriage is still good and it's still a gift and it can still be a blessing. And the hope that we need this morning is actually right here. We don't have to turn to the New Testament to find it. It's right here, just one verse away. This brings us quickly to a third scene, the Messiah's redemption. The Messiah's redemption. Look at Genesis chapter 3. And now we're backing up. I skipped this on purpose. We're backing up to see what God said to Satan when he sinned. Here's his punishment, verse 14. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and eat, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. Verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. In this verse, verse 15, we have... God giving us eternal hope. Get this, right in the wake of the first human sin. I mean, right after it takes place, God has not yet even told Eve and Adam what their punishments are. In the very first moments after they fall into sin, he gives us this glorious hope in verse 15. Theologians refer to this as the, the first gospel message. It's the first time that we get a glimmer of what God's plan of redemption will be. And he says to Satan, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman. Enmity is hostility. There's going to be this ongoing sense of hostility. And not just between he and Eve specifically, but he says between your seed and her seed, offspring. But then in verse 15, he uses a singular masculine pronoun, he. He doesn't say they. He says he, as if to say there will come one from the line of the woman who will do this. And what will he do? He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. What is he describing? He's saying, listen, Satan, there's going to be this ongoing hostility between you and the woman, but one day there will be one born from her lineage and he's going to crush you. You will strike him on the heel, yes, but his blow to you will be a headshot. It will be a crushing blow, a devastating blow. This is a glimmer of hope. It's a glimmer of hope that redemption is coming. All is not lost. As dark as it may be here in the wake of Adam and Eve's sin, God says, I have 
a plan to crush the head of the serpent. And what he's saying to Adam here is that there will come one who will be a new representative for mankind. Paul calls him the the second Adam. And he too will live in our place, only he will do what Adam could never do. He will live a perfect life. He will get it exactly right. He will, will follow all of God's command, and not just the one command, but the entirety of the law. He will keep it all perfectly. And then he will give his perfect life as our representative on the cross to pay for the sins that we have committed for all those who are his children. For any who will come in repentance and faith, he bore the wrath of God for their sins and then rose again on the third day, proving that he really was the son of God and that he really had accomplished his mission of satisfying the wrath of the father and even crushing the head of the serpent. Yes, we still live under the temporal consequences of sin until Christ returns and makes this place new, that will be our lot. But there is hope for us, both in eternity and even today, temporally speaking. Because first of all, if you will repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ, then you will be made new, and this second Adam will be your new representative, and God will forgive you of your sins, and look at you as if you actually had fulfilled the law as Jesus did. He'll see you with the righteousness of Christ that you didn't earn. But secondly, God says that when he saves a person, he makes them radically new. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. So now if you're in Christ, you have a new nature with new desires and a new ability by the power of the Spirit to walk in increasing patterns of holiness, to become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ in your character. He not only purchased for you, if you're in Christ, eternal salvation, but temporal sanctification. And that is the key. That is the key for you as an individual and for me, and it's the key for our marriages because what we need in our marriages is sanctification. We need to be more like Jesus Christ. Wives and husbands both, as we put on the character of Christ, we may not be able to achieve a perfect Genesis 2 marriage, but we can achieve in growing measure a Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5 type of marriage by God's grace. Step by step, but only if we know the Lord Jesus Christ, if we are relying on the power of the Holy Spirit, and by his grace, putting forth intentional effort, giving our maximum effort to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a recipe for how your marriage can begin to come, become what we've studied over the last two Sundays. And so I really want to say just two things to you this morning based on those truths. First of all, I want to say, take heart. Take heart. If you're discouraged in your marriage this morning, understand there is hope for you. There's hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't put your hope in your spouse. Don't put your hope even in the institution of marriage itself. Put your hope in Jesus Christ. He is your hope as an individual, and he's the only hope for your marriage to become an improving copy of what we've studied over the last two weeks. If you're not in Christ, turn to him for salvation. Don't waste a moment in your heart of hearts. Turn and repent of your sin and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are in Christ this morning, then don't slow down. Put forth the effort that it takes to grow in holiness through the means of sanctification that God says he uses, the word of God, prayer, his people. And that leads us to a second response. Take heart, but also be intentional. Be intentional. 
Listen, whether you've been married for six months or 60 years, your marriage will only be healthy and godly by God's grace and your sustained effort. You never reach a place in this fallen world with a sinful flesh where marriage does not require effort. And by effort, I mean effort at sanctification, becoming more holy so that you can become the kind of wife or husband God desires. Put forth the hard work of forgiveness, extending forgiveness, of showing patience, of fulfilling your role with joy and trust in God, of intentionally cultivating a warmth and companionship, a friendship in your relationship with your spouse. Be intentional in those things. And let me just say, if your marriage is in a place this morning that really needs outside help, you have tried to the best of your ability and and things just still are not on the same page, we want you to know that our church is here for you. We delight to walk alongside you. Call me, email me, let me know what's going on and let us lovingly come alongside to apply the scriptures to your situation so that you can begin to walk in a way that would please the Lord. But I share this with you this morning because if we don't have the foundation, if we're not in the Lord Jesus Christ and we don't understand our history and where we come from, then how will we ever walk in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5? It's my prayer that we will have marriages in this church that are increasingly what God intends. And through that, that we will be a witness for Christ. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for that, in many ways, refresher course of Genesis chapter 2. So easy to relegate those things to children's stories that we just tell in Sunday school to them and yet fail to apply to our own lives but this is our history this is what you've done in our lives this is what we've done and created the mess that we're in and yet in the midst of our sin and the devastation that it brought from the very beginning you told us that you had a plan that Paul says began in eternity past before you even made the world that through your son you would redeem a people for yourself. God, I pray that we would be that people for those who are not in Christ, that today would be a day of salvation, that they would come to Christ. And for those of us in Christ, that we would be committed to representing you well, by pursuing your character, being sensitive to sin in our lives and putting it off, putting on righteousness by the power of your spirit. We ask it in the name of Christ. Amen.